everybody. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here. And as Jeff pointed out, I do have five children sitting over here. Benaya, Ethan, Charlotte, Elsa, and Alana. But I want you to know that there once was a time when I did not have five children. In fact, it took us a while to have even one. We tried our hardest for almost three years to get pregnant. And that included some medical treatment for infertility. And it was a pretty anguishing time for us, as it is for many couples who struggle with infertility. After a number of months of treatment, we decided to adopt. And every ounce of suffering we had been through was worth it in order to bring our two precious sons home with us. But then within one month of settling into life in the United States with Benaiah and Ethan, we got pregnant with Elsa. When we announced our pregnancy publicly, we received from a close friend what may have been the most hurtful thing that had been said to us through the entire escapade. This dear Christian friend said, upon hearing that Aaron was now pregnant, said, see, I knew you two just had to relax. As though our infertility was merely a failure to relax. I was hurt by this commenter, but to be honest, she was no different toward me than I had been toward Aaron in my heart. Because in our first year of marriage, I was ready for kids, but she wanted time to wait. And when we faced infertility, my temptation was to think that God was punishing us for not having tried sooner. If only we had done blank, this pain would not have happened to us. And friends, this very conclusion is the topic of today's passage in the book of Job. This morning, we continue our series in Job, and we come to chapter 4, which, if you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 268. This is the start of a new section, a very long section in the book of Job. We've seen Job go from the top of the world to the bottom of the barrel. He was the wealthiest and greatest man among the people of the East, and he lost all his possessions in a single day. All ten of his children died in a natural disaster, and then he got hit with a debilitating medical condition with constant pain. And all of this happened to him because of a bet between God and Satan. You see, Satan thinks that Job doesn't actually fear God. He thinks that Satan only loves all the good things that God has given to him. God is convinced otherwise, and he permits Satan to throw Job under the bus in order to prove it. Job doesn't know that he's a pawn in a cosmic wager. All he knows is how much it hurts. Last week, we studied Job's anguished speech in chapter 3. After seven days of ruminating on his pain, this week in chapter 4, the first of his three friends who have come to comfort him, tries to answer his questions. This guy's name is Eliphaz. And Eliphaz believes that hardship in one's life is always a sign of God's discipline. And we must ask today whether Eliphaz is right about that. And I think 
the answer may surprise some of us. So this morning, on your outlines, you can see that we're going to take a look at three things. First, I want to take some time to talk about how to read the friend's speeches in this section of the book. But then we'll dig into the text and see how Eliphaz answers the question. And then we'll end with how we must answer the question. Let's pray again as we come to God's word. Our Father, we ask that you would give us insight into your word. Fill us with your spirit that we might know you better and we might have more of you, that we could honor you for your glory and the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before getting into the text, we ought to consider this larger section of the book and talk about how to read the friend's speeches. You can see on that that gray box on your, your outline, there's a map of Job. We are here entering act two of this play, the play of Job, where Job interacts with his three friends. And Job actually has four friends. Only three are mentioned at first. The fourth one's mysterious. He'll come on the scene later. But they come to comfort him, and they sit in silence with Job for seven days. They hear Job's anguished speech at the end of that week from chapter 3, where he cursed the day of his birth, and he regretted the fact that he was still alive, and he had anguished questions for God. Why is this happening to me? And chapters 4 through 37 record these friends' attempts to answer Job's questions. And it also records Job's interactions with their answers. Now, when we read the book of Job and when Christians speak of the book of Job, in my experience, I found it's common to treat these three men as buffoons. And they're really stupid and nobody would ever do what they're doing. But I want you to know that they are not buffoons. And here's why. Let me overwhelm you with a bit of detail just to make this point. They're not buffoons. They love Job. They care about him and speak because they want to help. They love God. They have a very high view of God's righteousness and God's power. They don't think that God is immoral for doing this to Job or that he's indifferent to Job's suffering or that he's incapable of helping Job in his suffering. They love God. In fact, they've walked with God for a very long time and they have a long history of friendship with Job. So they're not just strangers on the street saying stupid things. They tell Job, in fact, the very same things that Job would have told them if their positions were reversed. They're not pursuing their own agenda here. All they're trying to do is answer Job's own questions of why this is happening to him. And they do that because they really want to help their friend whom they care about. They're not buffoons. And they now speak. The book of Job is written as a play where the dialogue, the action happens through long speeches. And there's beautiful poetry meant to invoke deep feelings in the reader for these characters. And they take turns speaking back and forth. Eliphaz goes first and then Job responds. And then Bildad speaks and Job responds. And then Zophar speaks and Job responds. And that's one cycle. And they go through that cycle three times in the book. That's why in your little map we put three speech cycles here in this section. The play is structured beautifully to show the conversation's cyclical nature, where they will hear and respond to each other. They'll go around and around, but as they go, they will develop their arguments and their tempers will flare. And most of us today struggle with the book of Job as much as we struggle with Shakespeare. 
were scared not only by the play format, but also by the old poetry. So we often throw it away and we oversimplify the book's message. We take chapters 4 through 37, we boil it down to a moral or two, and then we jump to the juicy bits where God speaks at the end. But as we study this book together, please join us in wrestling through the poetry. We're going to try to understand the arguments, and as we dig through it, we'll see a godly sufferer in process. And as we do, we'll learn a lot about what it means to fear God while processing extreme feelings. And at the same time, we will see well-meaning comforters who want to help their friend, but they're not sure how. And they're a lot like us when we interact with our friends. And before we dig into the text, let me note a few contextual points that will shape our interpretation. One thing is that it's extremely clear in this book that Job has not done anything to deserve his suffering. God made that clear in chapter 2, verse 3, when he told Satan, Satan, you have incited me to destroy Job without reason. There's no reason why Job is suffering what he's suffering. We have to know that. We also have to know that at the end of the book, God will praise Job and he will condemn the three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In chapter 42, verses 7 and 8, two times God will say, you, Eliphaz, and your two friends, you have not spoken what is right about me as my servant Job has. So we need to know this. God will praise Job and he will condemn the three friends. However, that does not mean that Job is perfectly right Because as we go, we'll see he actually changes his mind or at least adjusts his thinking as he processes things through the book. And this also doesn't mean that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are completely wrong. There'll be more on that at the end of this passage. These are some things to help us learn how to read the friend's speeches. Let's now read the friend's speech. Let's talk about how Eliphaz answers the question. I'm going to begin with how Eliphaz answers Job's question. Job's question of, why is this happening to me? That'll be letters A and B. And then I'll end letter C with how Eliphaz answers my question. The title of the sermon, Is Hardship Always a Sign of God's Discipline? I'm going to keep my comments short because I want to grapple with the text. That means we're going to read it, two chapters, and I'll highlight the main ideas of Eliphaz's speech, and I'll have to skip a lot of the imagery for now. Let's start with the first stanza here, verses 1 through 6, where we see Eliphaz's accusation. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If one ventures a word with you, will you be impatient? Yet who can keep from speaking? Behold, you have instructed many, and you have strengthened the weak hands. Your words have upheld him who is stumbling, and you have made firm the feeble knees. But now it has come to you... And you are impatient. It touches you and you are dismayed. Is not your fear of God your confidence and the integrity of your ways your hope? Eliphaz, he starts gently. Do you mind if I offer some counsel, Job? He's a gentle friend. He wants to help. If one ventures a word with you. But observe the history here. He's not trying to shake Job up. He's merely trying to remind Job of what he already knows. He says, Job, I'm going to remind you of the same things that you have told many others. 
He says, you have instructed many. You have strengthened others. You've upheld those who were stumbling. But now it has come to you. And suddenly you're impatient. This is why I said earlier that I'm convinced Job would have said the same thing to Eliphaz if their situations were reversed. Eliphaz says, I'm going to tell you the things that you've told many other people before. Observe his charge. It comes right in the last verse of this stanza. Is not your fear of God your confidence in the integrity of your ways, your hope? You see, the chief question for Eliphaz, and in fact, this is the chief question of the entire book, is this. Does Job really fear God? That was Satan's wager. He said he doesn't fear God. He just loves what God does for him. It was God's assurance. He does fear me. And Eliphaz, right here in this verse, accuses Job of trusting in himself and not in God. He says, Job, your hope is your own integrity, the integrity of your ways. And he says, Job, your supposed fear of God is your confidence. At the end of the speech, he's going to say, what should be your confidence is God himself and not your fear of God. He's accusing Job of trusting in himself. Job, if you truly feared God, you wouldn't be so impatient at your suffering. Two times here he uses the word impatient. According to Eliphaz, Job's outburst in chapter 3 was an expression of impatience toward God's redemptive work in his life. You can feel the friendship here. Hear Eliphaz's compassion for his friend's pain. That's his accusation. If you truly feared God, you wouldn't be so impatient. Stop trusting yourself. What are his grounds for this? He goes on to give three grounds. The first is that you are guilty. Verses 7 through 11. Remember, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. The roar of the lion, the voice of the fierce lion, the teeth of the young lions are broken. The strong lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. His thesis in this stanza is in the first verse. Who that was innocent ever perished? Were the upright ever cut off? His thesis is this, those who sin suffer hardship. Those who do wrong are wronged. God is just. He blasts away the wicked. His implication is this, Job, you are perishing, therefore you are guilty. Because innocent people do not perish. Friend, I'm your friend here and I just, as a friend, I want to tell you, you're getting what you deserve. That's his first ground. You are guilty. The second ground, you are mortal. Verses 12 through 21. Now a word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it. Amid thoughts from visions of the night, when deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face. The hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? 
Even in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed like the moth. Between morning and evening, they are beaten to pieces. They perish forever without anyone regarding it. Is not their tent cord plucked up within them? Do they not die and that without wisdom? His thesis in this stanza comes right in the middle. Can mortal man be in the right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? And on this one, did you see how he pulls out the big guns? He leads up into that thesis by saying, this isn't my idea. I had a supernatural vision that revealed this to me. In the middle of the night, I was terrified. And this spirit came and stood before me and told me, that this is true. Mortal man cannot be right before God. This must be true, Job. And he goes on to say in the next verse, even in his servants, he puts no trust. God doesn't even treat his angels as peers. Of course, he won't treat we flimsy mortals as peers. His implication is this. Job, God's displeasure comes to all of us when we sin. That's what it means to be mortal. This is merely your opportunity to see it and repent. And see, this helps me to see how often I'm like Eliphaz, because Eliphaz, he's not just blowing hot air. Eliphaz is not proud. He's including himself. He is just as mortal as Job. He implies that he is just as guilty as Job, and he has needed to repent. In his life, he's trying to come alongside Job and he says, Job, this, this is true of all of us. I'm no different than you. I'm not better than you. Mortal man, we're all mortal. We can't be right before God. That's his second charge. His second ground is you're immortal. His third ground is that you are a fool. This is in chapter five, verses one through seven. Call now. Is there anyone who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Surely vexation kills the fool, and jealousy slays the simple. I have seen the fool taking root, but suddenly I cursed his dwelling. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate, and there is no one to deliver them. The hungry eat his harvest, and he takes it even out of thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For affliction does not come from the dust, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. But man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. His thesis here is in verse 2. It is that vexation kills the fool. Jealousy slays the simple. Fools may take root for a time, but eventually they are crushed, just like you are being crushed, Job. In verse 1, who in heaven will listen to one in such a state? And he goes on to say that the fool's affliction affects even his children and his property. Ouch. You see, he's pushing his finger right on the bruise. He is going after the very things that Job has lost. His children are far from safety. They are crushed in the gate. He's saying, Job, your children died because you're a fool. Job, you lost all your food and all your your flocks and herds, because you're a fool. This is like if you are talking to a woman who is struggling because she just had a miscarriage, 
and you decide to tell her the story of your cousin who had a miscarriage because of binge drinking. And you're drawing the implication. You see, I know why miscarriages happen. So what did you do to make this happen? Or you're talking with a couple wrestling with infertility and you tell them about other couples who adopt and then get pregnant after that. This is the flip side, but it's the same thing because we are more likely to cause vexation and jealousy than comfort because you're trying to give them a way out that you can't really promise. The implication is this. Job, you are being crushed. Your children are gone. Your property is gone. Therefore, you must be playing the fool. The point of all this is this. How does Eliphaz answer Job's question? Job, you want to know why this is happening to you? It's because you're guilty. It's because you're mortal. And it's because you are a fool. You're trusting in yourself, Job, and such self-confidence makes you impatient when you suffer the blast of God's anger. That's how he answers Job's question. Now, how does he answer my question? Is hardship always a sign of God's discipline? That's the purpose of this next section. Eliphaz goes on. He's a friend. He doesn't think that Job is a lost cause and he wants to help. So he makes two recommendations for what Job can do from here. The first recommendation is to seek your confidence not in yourself, but in God. Verses 8 through 16. As for me, I would seek God. And to God would I commit my cause. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. He gives rain on the earth and sends waters on the fields. He sets on high those who are lowly, and those who mourn are lifted to safety. He frustrates the devices of the crafty so that their hands achieve no success. He catches the wise in their own craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are brought to a quick end. They meet with darkness in the daytime and grope at noonday as in the night. But... He saves the needy from the sword of their mouth and from the hand of the mighty. So the poor have hope and injustice shuts her mouth. What would I do if I were you, Job? As for me, I would seek God. I would commit my cause to him. In verse 9, he says that God controls all things your suffering is not outside of his control, and God delights to flip social structures. Verse 11, he says, the high go down and the mourners are lifted up. Verse 12, he frustrates the crafty. The wise are caught in their craftiness. In verse 15, he rescues the needy from the, their mighty oppressors. In verse 16, he says, the poor have hope. Job, you're one of the poor now. You lost all your stuff. You're poor. You have hope. He has hope for Job. God makes justice possible. If you seek God, injustice will shut her mouth. His implication is this. Job, you are not yet really seeking God. Not until you fess up. So, recommendation number one. Seek your confidence, not in yourself, but in God. And then the last stanza here has his second recommendation, which is to accept the Almighty's discipline. 
verses 17 through 27. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. For he wounds, but he binds up. He shatters, but his hands heal. He will deliver you from six troubles. In seven, no evil shall touch you. In famine, he will redeem you from death and in war from the power of the sword. You shall be hidden from the lash of the tongue and shall not fear destruction when it comes. At destruction and famine, you shall laugh and shall not fear the beasts of the earth. For you shall be in league with the stones of the field, and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with you. You shall know that your tent is at peace, and you shall inspect your fold and miss nothing. You shall know also that your offspring shall be many, and your descendants as the grass of the earth. You shall come to your grave in ripe old age like a sheaf gathered up in its season. Behold, this we have searched out. It is true. Here. And know it for your good. If I read this stanza to you, and if I didn't tell you it was from the book of Job, I bet I could convince any one of you it was one of the Psalms. Everything Eliphaz says here could be true in a different context. And ironically, Eliphaz in, in this context, Eliphaz suggests that Job fear God and accept his discipline in order to get good gifts from God and not because of receiving God himself. Eliphaz is playing right into Satan's hand. Eliphaz unwittingly is arguing Satan's case. Remember Satan's charge was, he doesn't fear you, God. He just loves the things that you have done for him. And Eliphaz is saying, God will do all these great things for you. His thesis is in that first verse, verse 17. Blessed is the one whom God reproves, therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty. This verse lets us in on Eliphaz's core belief, which drives his entire speech. He lands here giving the most space and the most weight to this final recommendation out of any point he's made so far. And he wants the best for Job. He wants Job to know this for his good. He wants Job to be bound up, to be healed, to have long life, to have many offspring. And all of these things hinge on Job getting this point. And this point, this is what led me to understand the main point of Eliphaz's speech and what he was getting at. Because if hardship is always a sign of God's discipline. And if God's discipline is always corrective discipline for something you've done wrong, then everything Eliphaz says in these two chapters makes sense. Job is truly being impatient. Job needs to recognize his guilt. He needs to humble himself before the immortal creator. He needs to turn away from his folly. However, it is this very point that Job will dispute. Is hardship always a sign of God's corrective discipline? And even if it is, is this the best way to comfort a desperate sufferer? Eliphaz's speech stands or falls on this question. Is hardship always a sign of God's corrective 
discipline? Eliphaz answers my question with a resounding yes. That's the foundation of everything he said here. So in closing, we must attempt to answer this question ourselves. Last point, how we must answer the question. Have you ever asked yourself questions like these? What have I done to deserve this? What is God punishing me for? Is my past coming back to haunt me? Is God out to get me? Will God ever forgive me? Have you ever asked questions or wondered things like this about other people? Have you ever wondered what the homeless man did to make himself homeless? Have you ever wondered how immoral and out of control the drug addict must be to have gotten in such a desperate state? Have you ever wondered that the divorced person must have done something to have driven their spouse away? Have you ever wondered what what part of our nation's immorality was being judged by God on September 11th? These are sensitive issues, friends, and much of the time, if we're honest, I think we'll admit that we approach them just like Eliphaz does. And we must change our thinking. Is hardship always a sign of God's discipline? Eliphaz says yes. And we know that at the end of the book, God will condemn Eliphaz. So we're tempted to say no. Hardship is not always a sign of God's discipline. But believe it or not, that's not the conclusion that the poet of this book wants you to draw. I don't have time to read chapter 36, but you might want to check it out later as a preview of what's to come. But the mysterious fourth friend named Elihu will come on the scene. He claims to speak as a prophet of God, and God, when he speaks, he ends up reaffirming many of the same things that Elihu says. Elihu acts in this book sort of like a John the Baptist figure. He's preparing the way for the Lord before the Lord actually comes out to speak. And Elihu will challenge Eliphaz head on for not answering Job's questions rightly. And he will also challenge Job for justifying himself rather than God. And chapter 36, one part of Eliphaz's speech addresses this specific issue of God's discipline. And Elihu says this, not all discipline comes from a need for correction from sin. In fact, God always disciplines, but much of his discipline comes from the need that everybody has to be shaped and instructed. That's the argument he'll make. Eliphaz said, hardship is always a sign of God's discipline. And he was right. Hardship is always a sign of God's discipline. But Eliphaz knew only one kind of discipline, corrective discipline. And so in the end, Eliphaz was wrong. All hardship is discipline, But not all discipline is correction for past failure. Some discipline is intentional training and instruction for the good of the one being disciplined. Let me give an example for something that I think we all understand. If you've ever been around children, children need discipline. 
Sometimes they need discipline because they've done something wrong. You child should not have punched your sister in the nose. Go to your room. And when I say go to your room, what I'm really saying is, I, as the authority in your life, I will now make your life a little bit miserable by isolating you from further community until you repent and learn not to do that anymore. That needs to happen from time to time. Corrective discipline needs to happen. But sometimes children need discipline simply because they are young and immature and they need to learn how to function as a member of the family. Child, I bought you an alarm clock. You will be awakened violently in the morning by this raspy, harsh beep, and it will make you feel miserable. You would rather keep sleeping, but it is for your good so that you learn to wake up in the morning. You, child, will eat dinner when your mother chooses to serve it. We don't serve dinner anytime you want it. You, child, will come with us to church. You, child, will do your homework. You, child, will say please and thank you. You, child, will learn to use the potty. These disciplines will shape you into the person God wants you to be. You see, Eliphaz saw only the first kind of discipline, the corrective discipline. He had no place in his thinking for the second kind of discipline, the instructive discipline. Therefore, he had no way to truly comfort a desperate sufferer. And in the end, his theology left no room for the cross of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 5, verses 8 and 9 say this about Jesus. Although... Jesus was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Do you hear that? Even Jesus needed God's instructive discipline, even though he was without sin. God sent suffering into Jesus' life to shape Jesus into the kind of Savior God needed him to be. And God does the same thing for every one of us. I'm going to give three quick implications to end. Three quick implications. When you suffer, it's okay to ask if you did something wrong. Let's not overreact to Eliphaz. Because sometimes we suffer because we did something wrong. That happens. Perhaps you did. Perhaps you're suffering the direct consequences of something and you have an opportunity from God to turn from your sin or your folly and to seek God as your confidence. So don't be afraid to ask if you did something wrong. But second implication, when you suffer, it's okay if you can't find anything you did wrong. It's okay. You're not less spiritual. God is not absent and God is not punishing you. If you love Jesus, all your punishment was already taken out on him on the cross. But you can now tackle your anger and your pain and take it to the Lord. You can ask the Lord to complete his work in you by making you like Christ. Third and final implication when you try to comfort other people who are suffering, the question, friend, 
what can we do to avoid this pain in the future is not going to be a helpful question. A much better question could be, what are you learning about God through this? Or what is God teaching you through it? Or tell me more about how you're feeling right now. I just want to hear about it. Those questions will be much better. Let's pray.